Our scripture reading this morning is just one verse from Isaiah 57. It's verse 15. Well, we believe very strongly that every word of scripture is inspired and inerrant and authoritative. There are some of those words that get to the heart of things much more quickly than others. And this is one of those texts that gets to the heart of things very quickly. So hear this word from the Lord, Isaiah fifty-seven, fifteen. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. May God bless this reading and now the preaching of his word. Well, good morning, church. Glad to be here with you this morning and have the opportunity to start this new series on worship that we're beginning this morning. The rest of January and all the way through the month of February, we'll be considering the topic of worship. We're calling the series Worship Matters. Our mission as a church, we exist to be a gospel-centered community of worshipers on mission to make mature and multiply disciples of Jesus Christ. So key to our mission is worship. We exist to be worshipers. And I know that in starting this series, some of us are squirming a little bit because the subject of worship is a, can be a controversial one. In fact, I recognize that there are few issues in the church probably more explosive than discussions that have to do with the nature of worship. Mike Cosper in his book, Rhythms of Grace, recounts some of the nature of this worship warfare when he writes the following. He says, even so, when we talk about worship today, confusion abounds. One person uses the word to describe a particular style of music. Another uses it to describe a formalized liturgy, vestments, candles, and incense. Still another talks of worship as a way of life. And in between these varied definitions, debates rage. Many of us grew up in churches that went through years worth of worship wars where the piano and organ crowd battled for control of the church platform with the guitars and drum crowd. Conversations about worship get loaded with emotion and weighed down by preferences. One crowd laments the lack of depth in the lyrical content of our songs, while another laments the lack of contextualization and stylistic flavor. Whole movements emerge arguing that worship should be shaped by the evangelistic mission of the church and thus our services need to be, quote, attractional and friendly. Others swing the pendulum the other way, arguing that worship is only about the church gathering and worshiping their God and that outsiders shouldn't even factor into our planning for the gathering. So who's right? Cosper says. Who has the weight of the Bible on their side? What should worship look like among the exiles who enjoy God's grace here and now and yet suffer with sin and its destructive consequences all while eagerly anticipating Christ's return? End quote. So I think Cosper hits the heart of this issue pretty well. And I believe that a lot of this confusion about worship could be solved in some sense if we appreciated and honored the tensions in Scripture 
rather than going to extremes. It's my belief that worship isn't biblical unless there's a healthy tension that exists between seemingly opposite truths. Now, just to be clear, there are certain truths, of course, about worship that don't exist in tension with other truths. For example, worship must be directed to the God of Scripture. All other worship is false worship. There is no tension there. Worship also centers on the saving work of Jesus Christ through a substitutionary sacrifice. We don't approach God any other way than by trusting completely in the Savior he has given for us. We're not received any other way than unless we come in Jesus' name. Another tension that's not a tension, or I should say another truth that's not a tension, God's word, not our preferences or opinions, governs our worship. That's not intention. There are tensions that exist in God's word. Those are what we're going to talk about. But God's word itself, not our preferences or opinions, governs our worship. A fourth and final one, God alone determines how we approach him, what we call him, and how we relate to him. We don't get to call him what we want. We don't get to relate to him how we want. And we don't get to determine how we're going to approach him. We let scripture govern how we do that. However, alongside all of those non-negotiables, there are a significant number of perspectives and nuances that exist in healthy tension as we worship God. And we're going to explore several of those these next seven weeks. So what do I mean by tensions? Well, to quote that great theologian, Ted Chrisman, from his book, Facebook, he just wrote this this morning. I said, that's, that's well said. It's probably better than I said it in my sermon, so I'm going to quote him. He said the following this morning on his Facebook, I, kind of prepping this series. He says, I'm not talking about, when, he t- when we're talking about tensions, he says, I'm not talking about that awkward, frustrated, angry emotion between two individuals. That kind of tension is the result of sin. No, I'm talking about that mental and sometimes emotional discomfort that we feel in our minds when we try to reconcile two truths which seem to be mutually exclusive. I think that's well said. That's what we're going for. We're trying to hold together truths that seem to be in our psyche, in our brains, in our hearts, mutually exclusive. Yet scripture holds them out as both equally important and valid. Now, I believe that if we can appreciate tension in a, that sort of tension in the wider biblical context, we can get help. Because here's the reality, church. We live in an age that's characterized by tension. What do I mean by that? I mean, biblically, where we are situated in redemptive history is a tense age. It's an age in which the kingdom of Christ has come and yet has not yet fully come. We are already participants in the kingdom. And nevertheless, we we live in the midst of a world in which there doesn't seem to be much of a kingdom of Christ anywhere. Think about this. We're already saved by the work of Christ from the guilt and power, and shame, and wrath that is due to our sins. Nevertheless, every one of us is going to wrestle the rest of this day into tomorrow, all this week, the rest of our lives with the entangling snare of sin. That's a tension that we live in. To be freed from our sin by virtue of guilt, we're not guilty in Christ, we're not condemned in Christ, and nevertheless, we feel guilty. Because we still sin and we still struggle with sin. Another one, think about this. The world is being made new 
in Christ by the gospel as the work of reconciliation goes on around the world. And yet this work is not complete. The church is in a sense victorious, but it's suffering persecution, illness, and death. There's also that great tension in scripture between our responsibility to God and his sovereignty over our lives. I mean, that's the tension that scripture puts forward again and again and again. How can God be sovereign and in control of all things? And nevertheless, human beings be totally responsible and accountable for everything they do, which they are and which God is. So that we as a church, we worship in this context. We worship in an age characterized by tension. We are not home yet. We live in the already of the kingdom while awaiting the not yet fulfillment of the kingdom upon Christ's return. So therefore, church, we are a community in exile. Welcome to our life here in the wilderness as we're heading for the promised land. We're a community in exile. We're challenged to be in this world, but not of this world. There's a tension. We're called to thrive where we are while simultaneously hoping for the future. There's a tension. Our songs then and our worship is conducted in a tension of life between this world and the world to come. So we cannot escape tension. We live in a redemptive age that is characterized by it, by virtue of being living between the two advents of Christ, his first coming and his second coming. Now, what do I mean by healthy tension? Well, tension can also be defined in the following way. It can be defined as the state of being stretched. When I typed in my little Google search engine definition of tension, the first thing that popped up was the state of being stretched. Expanding elasticity to the point of breaking, but not breaking. Well, I believe that worship is intended to be a stretching experience. And why would we think it wouldn't be? We are, after all, gathering together to worship God. That's going to be a stretching experience. That's going to be a challenging experience. That isn't going to be a completely comfortable experience. While there are some parts of our worship that will feel very much at home for us based on our makeup and personality, other parts of our worship might feel strange, stretching, or straining. As Kent Hughes writes, we must worship God according to his revelation, not according to our disposition. We worship God according to what he says, not how we feel. That's critical because we like to throw under the bus a lot of times dispositions that aren't like ours. But we must not allow our disposition to trump God's revelation. The only way that we can exclude ourselves from such tension is to downplay the parts of the Bible that don't fit with our natural bent and attempt to justify our disobedience by holding up our preferred aspect of the tension while, at the worst, demonizing the other aspect. And this happens all the time, but it violates the wisdom of Scripture. Ecclesiastes 7.18 encourages us that it's good that you grasp the one thing without letting go of the other. That's very important. In an age that's characterized by tension, 
We have to hold to one without letting go of the other. The goal is to appreciate both perspectives, not be either or, but both and. Where scripture encourages us to be both and. Again, quoting theologian Chrisman. The reason many of us struggle with worship is because we haven't embraced the tensions that God himself has created. Our tendency is to figure out which truth we prefer, default to it, and sort of reject or at least resent the other one. It's okay to be more naturally drawn to one than the other. It's just the way we're wired and culturally conditioned. But we must not do, what we must not do is reject the tension or let it get to us and become emotionally distraught. If both truths are biblical, we need to humbly embrace them and not succumb to an inward emotional tension, end quote. So the goal of understanding these tensions is not so much to become balanced as it is to understand all the ways that God calls us to worship him and to seek to be faithful to all those ways that God calls us to do so. And obviously examining these tensions over the next several weeks in light of God's word may reveal areas where we can be doing better as worshipers, starting with me. I can be a lot better worshiper of Christ than I am right now. That's why our mission says we exist to make mature and multiply disciples. This is a maturing series. This is a series that's trying to mature us as worshipers in our thinking and then allowing our thinking to affect our hearts and our behavior. Alan Ross puts it this way. There's no reason for individual churches to change everything they have been doing. And that's not the point of this series. We are not trying to change everything we've been doing. But there is every reason, Ross says, for all congregations to evaluate everything they are doing to see how they can do it better. That's exactly what we're trying to do in this series. We're trying to evaluate every area, including the worship life of our church together, and see how we can be worshiping God better. And I believe that God wants us to grow as worshipers. And in part, that growth will consist in honoring these tensions that scripture gives us about worship. So I've said enough about that. What are the seven tensions? I'm just going to go ahead and fold out, give you the table of contents for the next seven weeks. Here they are. Number one, and these aren't all of them. These are just seven of them. One, God's greatness and God's nearness. That's the one we're going to take up this morning. God's greatness and God's nearness. The second, head and heart. Head and heart. Third, internal and external. Internal and external. Four, vertical and horizontal. Fifth, planned and spontaneous. Sixth, rooted and relevant. Seven, event and every day. Those are the seven tensions we're going to explore the next seven weeks. So today we take up the tension of God's greatness and God's nearness, or to use the theological terms, God's transcendence and God's eminence. God's transcendence means his otherness, his greatness, his differentness from us in his godness. And then God's eminence, which refers to his nearness, the ways in which he is like us and desires to relate to us. So that's where we're going this morning. We're going to focus on God's majestic transcendence and God's eminence, his intimate eminence. Theologically, God is both out there and right here. He is both tough 
and tender. He is both sovereign and sweet. In our worship, we want to hold in tension the approach to God in his holiness and righteousness, which ought to produce reverence and awe in us, as well as God in his mercy and grace, which ought to produce gratitude and joy. We believe that to focus on both will create a necessary and needed tension in our worship services. Some songs or elements in our worship might feel more free-flowing and folksy, and that's intended to reflect God's nearness. While other, other elements or songs in our worship service might feel more traditional or liturgical because we approach a God who is not merely Emmanuel, God with us, but is also a consuming fire who dwells in unapproachable light. So here's where we're going this morning. Here's my outline. Well, first of all, I want to give us a definition. Okay, I want to look at scripture and show us God's greatness and God's nearness. That's where we're going to be first. We're going to look at that definition of God's greatness and God, God's nearness scripturally. Then I want us to look at the tension from three passages in Isaiah that illustrate God's greatness and God's nearness being to, held together intention. One of them was read by Tim for us, Isaiah 57, 15. And then finally, I want to wrap up with some application about how this particular tension should work, work itself out in worship. All right. So here, let's go, let's go first of all to definition. And would you go with me to Isaiah chapter six, Isaiah six, this is one of, if not the key passage when talking about God's majestic transcendence, when Isaiah gets a vision of God in the year that King Uzziah died. And in this passage, we're going to see that God's greatness is such that his glory and supremacy and majesty surpasses all of our ideas, thoughts, and opinions about him. In fact, in Isaiah 55, Isaiah goes on later to stress that so high are his thoughts above our thoughts and his ways above our ways. That's an expression of transcendence, of his greatness, of his otherness. So God's greatness, according to scripture, no one can fathom. He is so great and so supreme and so majestic and so independent from and superior to his creation, so unlimited by the things that limit us like time and space, that his greatness no one can fathom. So as we worship God, we must remember that he is not us. He's not us. He's not a man. That he should lie, as Numbers 23 says. Or the son of man, that he should change his mind. Does he speak and not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? He's the God. He's the king. He's the judge. He's the sovereign one, the glorious one, the majestic one over all the earth. God is God. We are not. And Isaiah is going to see that real fast. Isaiah 6, 1 to 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. 
That's how Isaiah responded, by the way. He didn't go, woe is me. I'm undone before you. No, he screamed. Then one of the seraphim flew to him, having in his hand a burning coal that had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. As soon as Isaiah came into the presence of this glorious, transcendent, thrice holy God, whose whole earth is filled with his glory, as soon as he beheld the throne and the train of his robe and the seraphim and the six wings and the the, the, the six that covered his, the two that covered his face, the two that he covered his feet, and the two he flew, the six wings that were on the seraphim. And they, he heard them calling back and forth to one another, acknowledging God's greatness and holiness. And he sees the foundation shaking at the voice. And the house is filled with smoke. All he can say is, I'm gone. I'm doomed. I'm dead. Woe is me. Guilty as charged. Unholy is what is revealed to him when he comes into the presence of God. His great unholiness in light of God's holiness. He doesn't come into the presence of God and like, hmm, hey pal, good to see you. Nice to be here. He doesn't feel chummy. He's not flippant. He recognizes the God that he's come, that he's come in contact with. And this is not entirely unique to Isaiah's experience at Sinai. Remember the Israelites were afraid and trembled and they stood far off when God was on the mountain with Moses. When John in the book of revelation encountered the risen Christ in his vision of heaven, according to revelation one seventeen, quote, he fell at his feet as though dead. He had an Isaiah experience before the greatness and glory of Christ. God is holy, unlike us. He is God and there is no other. He is God and there is none like him. He alone has immortality. He alone dwells in unapproachable light. He alone is holy. We sing songs like this occasionally. Immortal, invisible, God only wise. In light, inaccessible, hid from our eyes. Most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days. Almighty, victorious, thy great name we praise. Unresting, unhasting, and silent as light. Nor wanting, nor wasting, thou rulest in might. Thy justice like mountains, high soaring above. Thy clouds, which are fountains of goodness and love. To all life thou givest, to both great and small. In all life thou livest, the true life of all. We blossom and flourish as leaves on a tree, and wither and perish, but not changeth thee. Great Father of glory, pure Father of light, thine angels adore thee, all veiling their sight. All praise we would render, O oh, help us to see, tis only the splendor of light hideth thee. That's a song, just like Holy, 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 which we sang this morning, which reflects God's greatness, his transcendent awesomeness and otherness from us. And therefore, worship should make us feel dirty. Worship should make us feel unclean and undone to the God to whom we sing. It should make us feel our sinfulness, recognize our sinfulness, God's greatness, God's otherness. 
And that's a tension in worship as we come to approach the God, the God, even though we don't have the same vision that Isaiah had, we are coming to the same God Isaiah came to. And therefore his character and what he is like is no different than when we gather on Sunday morning than when Isaiah saw him in the year that King Uzziah died. And therefore, to some degree, there should be a humility and brokenness and contrition and reverence and awe as we come to God and his greatness. But God is also near to us. Turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. God is not only great in his transcendence and otherness, he's also near in his eminence. He's not distant only from his creation. He's not isolated from us. Though we may feel like God is a million miles away, sometimes he isn't. He is right here. The same God who is described as holy, holy, holy is also described as our husband in Christ, our, bright, our shepherd, our savior And one of the most amazing demonstrations of God's nearness and eminence is the fact that God himself became one of us. I mean, God didn't just draw near to us. He became one of us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. God himself took on flesh and blood and dwelt among us. Can God get any nearer than that? Yes. Because not only did God become like us and one of us in the person of Christ, but after Christ was raised from the dead and the spirit was poured out, all those who believe in Christ receive an even greater manifestation, manifestation of God's eminence. Namely, the person of the Holy Spirit taking up residence in your life. God lives in you. Think about that. It can't get any more. He can't be any more near than in Christ as you are in him. He is in you by the person and presence of the Holy Spirit. So God is not only with us. He dwells in us. He not only dwells with us in Christ or when Christ came, but also now by the presence of the spirit of Christ dwells in our lives. The transcendent God has become near to us and taken up residence in us. And it's this comfort, while it's not this truth that Hebrews 4 is alluding to, it's this nearness of Christ and his sympathy as our great high priest that the writer is alluding to here in Hebrews chapter four and five. Let's read Hebrews four, starting at verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. There's his greatness, but look, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find help in time of need. 
For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And he goes on in verse 5, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but he was appointed by him who said, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Verse 7, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Behold God's nearness in the person of Jesus Christ. We not only have a terrible God, we have an intimate, sympathetic God. In Christ, God comes to us as one who can sympathize, verse 15, with our weaknesses and who has been made like us in every single respect except our sinfulness. Think about that. He understands everything about you, not just because he made you, but because he was you. He knows what it's like to be a human being in a fallen world. He knows what it's like to watch people struggle with sin. And therefore, he is able to sympathize with us. We should be very thankful that yet without sin phrase is in there. Because if he's a sinner, he's no good for us as a savior from sin. But what does the writer say? Let us then with confidence, 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 not fear, not trepidation, confidence, approach the throne of grace. That's what we do when we gather on Sundays. We draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It is not, not worship for you to come to worship looking to get your needs met by Christ. It is not, well, they don't have any regard for worship. Look at them. They're not in awe and reverence. They might be broken and crying and weeping because they need a sympathetic high priest because the week went bad. And they saw their own sin and they saw the sin of others. And they're like, what am I going to do with this? Jesus will help me. He knows my weaknesses. He knows my trials. He knows my difficulties. He knows what I've been through. And I can come to him and I know I'm not going to meet a frown or a scowl. I'm going to meet a sympathetic high priest who knows and can deal gently with me in my weaknesses. And therefore, it's a command. Let us draw near to the throne of grace with confidence, for we will receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Every bit of mercy and grace that you need is going to be given to you. Every single bit. It may not all work out the way you want it to work out, but he will be enough if you will come after him. So, there's his nearness. The sympathetic one who is able to deal gently with us. And as we approach his throne of grace, we receive mercy. So his throne is both a terrifying throne in Isaiah 6. 
And in Hebrews 4, it's a gracious throne. There's a tension, right? Well, let's see how these tensions are hold together, held together in the book of Isaiah. Turn back with me to Isaiah 54, and we're going to look at three texts in Isaiah to kind of illustrate how this tension is held together in Scripture of God's greatness and God's nearness. If you think about it, before I get to Isaiah 54, if you think about it, the whole Bible opens with this tension, doesn't it? Genesis 1 and 2. I mean, we meet a God who is great. We meet a God who is the creator, who brings order out of chaos, who calls into life things that are not yet in existence just by virtue of him speaking. He makes Adam and Eve. He curses the man and the woman for their sin. He judges the earth with a flood. He confuses languages. He overthrows Sodom and Gomorrah all in the first half of Genesis. We meet this great, transcendent, awesome, judging God. And nevertheless, we also meet him as one who creates man in his own image, who brings the animals to Adam. What would you like to name this, son? Who walks with him in the garden, who asks him questions and interacts with him and is interested in them all the time. Interested in what's going on in his world. What are these people doing down there building this tower? Oh, I'll stop that. He's interested all, I mean, it's just a tower in the Middle East somewhere. And it's got God's attention. God is both great and near. Let's see it in Isaiah. Isaiah 54, 5. For your maker is your husband. There's attention. Boy, that's two different images, isn't it? Your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. That's the Lord of angel armies, of, of, of the seraphim and cherubim that we saw in Isaiah 6. That's your husband. The Holy One of Israel, the Holy One of Israel, one of the most definitive names for God in his otherness, greatness, and supremacy is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth, he is called. See that tension? He's a maker. He's the Holy One of Israel. He's the Lord of hosts, who is your husband and redeemer. That's going to create a tension in how you relate to him, isn't it? Isaiah 57, 15, the one that Tim read for us this morning. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up. There's Isaiah's vision. Who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God said, you want to know where I live? I live in the throne room of heaven and in the hearts of the broken. I live in the throne of heaven and the hearts of the broken. The hearts of the contrite, the needy, the meek, the lowly, those who need me, I will show up for them. And I will be with them to be all they need. I am the one who both dwells in the high and holy place and in the broken, tearful place. And then one last one in Isaiah 66, two, 1 and 2. Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne 
and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you will build for me? And what's the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. God's like, you want to build something for me? You want to build a temple for me? You really think that's significant to me when I put my feet up on the earth? I mean, heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. He says, all these things my hand has made. All All of them came into being by my word. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. This is the one to whom I will look. The person who when their, my word meets their heart, they bow. That's the person to whom I will look. When my word meets their heart, they bow. They don't make excuses. They don't say, I don't like that. They said, if it's there, I don't care the way I feel. It's true. God, you are right. That's what it means to be humble and contrite in spirit and tremble at his word. J.F. Packer in his great book, Knowing God, if you haven't read it, you need to read it before you go to visit God one day. It will help you on the journey. That's one of the ones that is almost inspired. Way, way down the list, but, but in terms of inspiration, but so helpful. J.I. Packer captures this tension well in knowing God when he says, like us, God is both personal and unlike us, he is majestic. So he's picking up on this nearness and greatness. He is personal, but unlike us, he's majestic. Now listen to this carefully and how he holds these things in tension together. He says, in all its constant stress, constant stress, they're talking about the Bible now, in all the Bible's constant stress, on the reality of God's personal concern for his people and on the gentleness, tenderness, sympathy, patience, and yearning compassion that he shows toward them, the Bible also never lets us lose sight of his majesty and his unlimited dominion over all his creatures. There it is. Constant stress on the reality of God's personal concern without ever losing sight of his majesty. And that's what we want to do as a church. We want to lay constant stress on God's personal concern for us as people without ever losing sight of his majesty, greatness, and transcendence. Okay, so that's definition. We've defined it. We've looked at tension. Now let's move to briefly to application. I've got three things to say and about five minutes to do it in. So... I want to make three applications of this. I want to make a global application, an application to our gatherings, and then an application to the gospel. I'm sorry, I'm a neurotic, alliterative idiot. I don't always have to have it, but I like it when it comes to my brain. So, all right, global, gathering, and gospel. Those are going to be our three applications. So let's look at the global one first, all right? Because God is both great and near to us, There is no one place on earth that is prescribed as the only center for worship of him. No one place. He's not especially in the Holy Land or in Jerusalem. He's not there anymore. Jesus clearly taught that when he rolled up on the scene in John 4. So are we supposed to worship on this mountain or that mountain? No, no, no. 
Geographies change, sister, for worship. Namely, it's not on this mountain or that mountain will you worship the Lord. The Lord is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. It's a new day. God is now available, and this is so comforting to those of our brothers and sisters who are suffering, struggling. They don't have to come to New York City or Los Angeles or Owensboro or Rio de Janeiro or Moscow or Sydney, Australia or Punjab, North India. They don't have to go go anywhere. Why? Because God is near to them in the very place they are as they gather with the church there. God is available worldwide to all his people all the time. That's the global application of God's nearness and God's transcendence. He is everywhere his people gather. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. Psalm 145, 18. So that's the global application. Second, let's make an application to our gathering. When we gather on Sundays, we are gathering before a God who is both great and near in our services are striving to reflect that reality. We'll never do it perfectly because we live in an age characterized by tension. We're in the already and not yet. We're not going to do it perfectly. We're not always going to honor the tensions the way the scripture holds them together, but we're going to try prayerfully and humbly and deliberately to do that to the best of our ability. And we need to recognize that different services that different gatherings that we have might have different emphases and different themes associated with them. It's been a, a relative pattern here as heritage to allow the text that is being preached to shape every single aspect of our service. We want God's word to not just govern what I'm doing now, but everything we're doing when we're gathering. So if I'm preaching on Hebrews four about a sympathetic high priest, you better believe it's going to feel warm in here. And if I'm preaching or Jonathan's preaching or someone else is preaching on Isaiah chapter six, you better believe it's going to feel weighty in here. At least we pray it will because we want to honor those tensions. We believe that, that the text of the sermon should largely dictate our worship response. The song should be informed by the text. And that's what Jonathan labored to do this morning was to try to capture that tension, to sing holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, to celebrate his transcendence, and also to sing a song like, oh, great God of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart. And then he sang a song like forever rain, which strives to hold those things in tension. We got this great king who's calling us to him. So we're trying to be deliberate and intentional about that as we try to craft the other elements of our services to that text that we're going to be opening up in the preaching. And finally, gospel. You know what? Brothers and sisters, the best way to hold this tension together is to be really gospel-centered people. If the gospel is capturing our hearts and is governing our thinking and our attitudes, we will have no problem embracing this tension between God's greatness and God's nearness and being able to move in and out of them because the gospel governing our hearts is calling us to that all the time. What do I mean? I mean that the gospel, in order for the gospel to be embraced, we have to appreciate and embrace this tension. So if you've embraced the gospel, you've embraced this tension already. Why? 
Because we understand that God is great and transcendent in his holiness. All of us have had, who are in Christ, who are Christians now, have had the Isaiah 6 experience. If you haven't, I call into question whether or not you've met the God of the Bible. Now, it doesn't mean you're crying out, woe is me, and pulling your hair out and throwing dust and ashes on yourself and ripping your clothes. That's, doesn't, I don't, don't think that's happened to anybody. But what, what has happened is we have said, I am unclean. I am unclean. You, 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 you sense the uncleanness and your filthiness and your dirtiness before God. The, you have to feel that before you embrace the gospel because God is holy and you're not, and I'm not. He is righteous. We are not. So we tremble before him because he's the judge and king of all the earth. And we recognize that our sin was what nailed his son to the cross. And at the cross, we understand that it was nothing less than the son of God that was required to die for our salvation because God is holy and righteous and just. We offer him no excuses. We recognize ourselves to be completely at his mercy. And having that hold sway in our hearts will keep us humble and dependent and aware of his greatness. I can remember when that was happening to me at 14 and 15 years old. When God was beginning to show me that he held me in his hand, that he was my creator. And that every day I lived apart from him was the height of arrogance. Considering that he was the one that held me and all he had to do was withdraw my breath and I'm in hell for all eternity justly for not honoring him and giving him thanks as my creator, but living in absolute one dimensional rebellion to him, not even entertaining his thoughts, not setting him before me, not consulting him on my decisions, not letting his presence and power inform anything about my life and priorities and purpose. And that's where we all are before we come to Christ, isn't it? But then we meet and we hear the good news. We hear of a Christ, the son of God, who has come and atoned for every sin of every person who would ever believe in him. And we're, we realize that when we come to him, we meet his grace and mercy. We are adopted into his family by faith. We're no longer treated as his enemies. We, we are made a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And if we hold to this, we'll appreciate God's nearness and not be troubled when we relate to God in affectionate, intimate ways of joy and gladness. Here's what the gospel does. It humbles us because we realize our sin is so great that Jesus had to die for it. But it also fills us with joy since we recognize in God's nearness, Jesus was glad to die for it. He had to die he was glad to die. Great and near. The gospel calls us to that tension. I close with this quote by Charles Spurgeon and then we'll pray. Spurgeon, great pastor, preacher. He just, he just lays it out in this quote about holding this tension in worship and how why it's so, so important. He says, I can admire the solemn and stately language of worship that recognizes the greatness of God. But it will not warm my heart or express my soul until it has also been blended with the joyful nearness of that perfect love that casts out fear and ventures to speak with our Father in heaven as a child speaks with its Father on earth. <laughs> 
Brothers, no veil remains. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that in Christ, no veil remains. That you are, yes, a consuming fire. And you are, yes, a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Help us, God, to feel this as we worship you, both individually as families and as we gather together on Sundays, on the Lord's Day, to celebrate you, to glory in you, to approach you with reverence and awe, but also with thankfulness and joy, as you call us to. Help us to feel this, to to press into this as a people, and to, um, we pray that you would show up each week as we gather before your word, among your people in whom you dwell, that you would show us a vision of yourself, that you would give us in our hearts an awareness of your greatness and your nearness. We ask this for your glory and in Jesus' name, amen. Well, people of God, let's stand together and I will leave you with this benediction this morning. As you prepare to leave, receive this blessing for the road. May the love of God surround you, the wisdom of Christ guide you, and the power of the Holy Spirit encourage you as you joyfully proclaim our world does in fact belong to God. Amen.